Keeping It 101, a Killjoy's introduction to religion podcast. For 2021-2022, our work is made possible through a public humanities fellowship from the University of Vermont's Humanities Center. We're grateful to live, teach, and record on the current ancestral and unceded lands of the Abenaki, Wabanaki, and Ocosisco peoples. As always, you can find material ways to support Indigenous communities on our website. What's up, nerds? Hi, hello. I'm Megan Goodwin, a scholar of American religions, race, and gender. Hi, hello. I'm Elise Morgenstein First, a historian of religion, Islam, race, and racialization, and South Asia. Hi, hello, Megan. <laughs> Are you ready for another episode on Hinduism in this epic season of <laughs> History of the World? Religions, part one. I am, I think. I think? No, I am. I am. I am. Yes. I can maybe do with a semi-review and then like a sense of what comes next. It has been a really long semester and it's not over yet. As as you wish. Oh, my sweet Wesley. <laughs> what have we done? Well, last time we uh, tried not to, to get through any forests, but to answer what is Hinduism by talking about plurality of Hindu traditions, how caste affects definitions of Hinduism, the practice of Hinduism, and more. And I did a little bit on the Ramayana, one of the major Sanskrit epics, to show that plurality just just a wee little bit. Is that is that enough of a, of a tiny little semi-review for now? Yes, but now I want to know if there are any rodents of unusual size in the Ramayana. Ramayana? Ramayana? Yeah. Rodents, rodents of unusual size. <laughs> I don't yeah. I don't think so. There are bears that talk. Okay. And there is obviously a monkey army. I mean, yeah. duh. Obviously. Can't go anywhere without a monkey army. <laughs> but rodents of unusual size, I don't think so. Okay. But I could be wrong. It's a super long epic. And <laughs> Lord knows I haven't read the whole thing in a long time. Okay, fair enough. How many monkey armies were, will, will there be? Plenty. Plenty of monkey armies. Elise, you know that the answer is one for now, but they'll train others. Come on, man. I know, but they were already trained and I couldn't make my Simpsons brain connect to my Sanskrit brain and I'm sorry. Fine, fine. I forgive you. I am satisfied. And more importantly, I assume that our listeners on this episode would maybe love it if we got to the point. If they want to hear the other episode, they could like listen to it. Uh, maybe pause this one and go back. Yeah. I love it when you're firm but fair with our nerds, Goodwin. <laughs> Boundaries are love. I do what I do. All right. So on that note, let's get moving since we have yet another jam-packed episode. Monkey-packed. <laughs> All right. Wait, wait. No. Uh, before we travel to whatever land of Hindu traditions would no doubt shock and awe me... I want to tell the nerds about today's incredible guest experts. We will be joined in this episode by not one, but two incredible scholars, Dr. Srina Gandhi and Deepa Sundaram. Uh, Dr. Gandhi is a fixed-term assistant professor of religious studies at Michigan State University and is an expert on religion and race in the Americas with a focus on Hindu communities. Her work often discusses race and yoga. Hmm. Dr. Sundaram is assistant professor of Hindu studies, critical theory, and digital religion at the University of Denver. Her work focuses on the formation of Hindu virtual religious publics, how the internet fashions new canon for Hindu religious practice. Uh, they are also both sacred rights alums and smart, smart ladies. So they are both going to introduce themselves later on. But I am just so freaking honored that they are lending their voices and their expertise to us today. Me too. In that case, we should see lesson plan on ice. 
love it. <laughs> Last time, we talked about Hindu traditions for two reasons. First, because Hindus comprise a major population in the world, and yet, at least here in the States, few folks actually know what Hinduism is or what Hindus do. Yeah, we're and done. second, we said, because <laughs> Hindu traditions are a fascinating place to see how religion is what people do, how religion, in scare quotes, is related to imperial projects, and how religious nationalism functions. Last time we did more history, fewer contemporary examples. I was so happy. You were so so happy. happy. (laughs) Today, uh, we're going to focus more on the contemporary and less on the historic. But I want to remind, I want to remind everyone from the jump that Hindu traditions are vast, complex, and changing, even when folks claim the opposite. You see, those claims are themselves, well, they're claims that create change. We're going to talk more on that in a minute. So today, our lesson plan on ice is relatively but deceptively simple. How do Hindus do what they do today? And where can we specifically see plurality even when the world religions model asserts singularity or uh, homogeneity? So Hinduism, what is it doing? What are they doing? What, how do Hindus do the Hinduism in lots of different ways? That's basically it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. 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 All right. That brings us to the 101 on today. The section where we do professor work. Irv, let me take up the script that you have beautifully written for us. I have taught about religion since 2008, I guess, in some capacity. I have several many degrees in religion or religious studies. And truly, I never had to take even one single class, even like half a class on South Asian religions broadly, Hinduism specifically, certainly not. Again, I have only that the problem of world religions class that I took uh, in the theology school at Drew. So uh, I have, I mean, I have a lot of questions, but two for today. One, why do we care about contemporary Hindu practices versus historical Hinduisms? And then two, how can we even talk about like Hinduism as a thing, given you keep saying how much plurality there is? Those are excellent questions, Megan. Thanks, you wrote them. In order. (laughs) First, listen, you know I love historical facts and trends. And you, like literally you, Megan, and I assume our longtime listeners at this point also know that Frankly, my entire intellectual project is historical legacies in today's world. That's just how my brain works. The shin bones connected to the knee bone, etc. So for me, one of our catchphrases at this point is actually a really good way to answer your question. Religion is what people do. This particular mm-hmm. catchphrase is one that I borrowed for the pod from my classrooms. And I apply this. Religion is what people do in every single era we study or I study, period. But listen, I'm not dumb. When we say that, when we say religion is what people do, most of us, you know, listening right now are bounded in time and space to to like this moment right now. Allegedly. Our go-to thought isn't therefore like 1546. So when I say religion is what people do, I assume our listeners or my students are imagining people doing something like right here, right now. Mm -hmm. So thinking about contemporary practices is, like, frankly, just a useful way for us to get our nerds to see what people do, like with video or images or in their mind's eye, since this is an audio medium. (laughs) 
And more importantly, I assume, frankly, far more where your brain lives, Goodwin, contemporary practices actually impact all of us. And that may sound absurd. How do dullet or uncasted or ugh, untouchable, which we're going to get to that word in a hot second, how do dullet practices, for example, affect us two white ladies in the United States? Is this a butterfly effect scenario? Are you pitching a butterfly effect scenario? What? Mm. What's happening? What? No, I, I mean, I'm not. Or am I? No, I'm not. I'm really not. I'm super not. There are not multiple timelines. We are not like rolling a multi-sided die. We are not butterfly <laughs> affecting. But I am trying to say that those Dalit ritual practices contribute to how Hindu traditions are lived right now. And that is political. That impacts economic systems. And that can tell us something about access to things like clean water and toilets. It can tell us a lot about identity, fluidity of practice, even experiences of violence. So like you and I have said a million times now, religion is never just religion. Okay. And so thinking about contemporary practices helps us understand not the world in some grand sense, but but our world, like this literal place that we're sharing right now. Yes. Yes. All of that. Yes. Uh, I, as you know. I am really interested both in religious innovation and in how religion is politics and politics are religious. Obviously, that's definitely true in what's not the United States, but I also a little bit know that it's true in India. And we're going to be drawing a lot of our examples from India for folks who claim Indian heritage today, even though we know nerds that Hinduism is not limited to India or even South Asia, which I guess brings us back to my second question. Can we even think about like Hinduism as a thing if there's so much plurality in it? Well, I mean, this is a big question for scholars of South Asia, all of it, not just India, and scholars of religion and scholars of Hindu traditions. Hey, there can are, I, yeah. Can I ask a question that's maybe a dumb question, but I don't know, help a sister out? Uh, when we're talking about South Asia, where are we talking about? Oh boy. Okay. My insides hurt, but you are correct. South Asia is comprised of many nation states, many, if you can imagine a map, since again, audio medium, yep, we yep. are thinking about what looks like the um, subcontinent of India. So that peninsula that juts out into the Indian Ocean, but mm -hmm. it's not just India. So Pakistan is there, mm -hmm. India, Bhutan, Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, uh, the Maldives, like all of those places. And then depending on who's in charge of deciding what counts as Asia as compared mm -hmm. to the Middle East, some mm -hmm. folks would include Afghanistan. Other folks, when they're deciding between South Asia and Southeast Asia, might include um, uh, Burma or Myanmar and some of the countries that were historically connected to the subcontinent by rulership. So it's flexible, but yeah, that that's the region we're talking about. Okay, that's helpful. Thanks. Yeah, don't get me started because we could talk about for days how like, depending on where we are at war, then the US classifies Pakistan as like the Middle East because like Middle East mm -hmm. equals Muslim. It's a mm -hmm. whole thing, mm -hmm. gang. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Go Google what I've written before. <laughs> <laughs> Please see my published works. Anyway. But I will say that lots of people use South Asia and India interchangeably, like mistaking one nation state for the whole region, which is just, it's just bad. It's bad geography. Mm -hmm. It's bad history. It's bad politics. Good. Let's not do that. Cool. So there's a lot of folks, including Hindus themselves, who've used this argument of plurality, which you're citing here, 
mm-hmm. to argue that their specific lineage, like their particular neck of the Hindu woods is actually its own thing and its own religion. So there've been like lawsuits about this. And the reason for that has usually been, like I just said, about legal definition, which, you know, in a nation state usually means access to more freedoms or legitimacy in the eyes of various state authorities like the courts or like, um, and, and providing all sorts of things like access to divorce or property rights or whatever. Okay, A, I'm super excited about that because you know that is my entire jam. And B, I see you teasing our next episode on religion and law. Well played. Uh, Yeah, yeah, you know how (laughs) I do. But I think we are meant to follow the naming here. So we take seriously folks who call themselves Hindu to be Hindu, period, the end. Yeah. So I want to be clear that even when some Hindus out loud say that other Hindus don't count, that they are not Hindu, if those Hindus say, wait a minute, we, like, our response, you and my response, is neat. This is an internal debate between Hindus. Yeah. Our response is not, for example, that one side of this argument is correct. Yeah, no. That's big British and, frankly, German Orientalist energy, which I like to avoid, like, the plague or the coronavirus. Yeah, fair enough. Let's mask up. Blur. Yeah. We wash our hands literally and figuratively of that nonsense. Okay. Totally. So we call people what they want to be called forever and ever the end. We also recognize the imperialist history that lumped all of these practices into one thing and only one thing. And we recognize how actual Hindus, among other actors, also argue, agitate, and create definitions within and beyond the system. Because like, while there's obviously so very much imperialism here, There is never a moment when Hindus lack full agency. Hindus are acting, defining, and redefining all the time. Infinity percent. Yes. Yes. And, like, I'm really interested in the relationship between power systems. So how did Mm -hmm. Brahmins at the very top of the caste system and British officials, famously not Hindus, at the (laughs) very top of their particular political system, how did those two systems both come to influence how Hindu traditions evolve, right? Like, that's a question I'm super excited about. But that's not the only way to think about religious practice. Even if that question is part of my expertise, there are other experts thinking about this question of power systems and definitions differently than I do. All right. All right. Noted. Also, like, duh, you can't do all the things. Um, What does this mean practically, though? Like, I have been told... I have, in fact, witnessed with mine own eyes that you cannot handle a theory if it does not have a case study. So, like, I'm going to need you to, like, give me some some case studies to ground this highfalutin theory. I would like for the record to call attention that I couldn't even write it in the script. Like, there are there are. There are footnotes in our script, which are, which for whom? We're not going to say them. Why did I do that? Anyway. It's fine. I work it out. <laughs> I'm going to give our nerds a little consistency from last time. So instead of the footnotes that I made for us and us alone, apparently, and the for us, I mean me, for yeah. me, <laughs> like, okay. I put them for me, to give our nerds a little consistency. So if you happen to listen to episode 406, What is Hinduism? Part one, we're going to draw from those same examples so that, you know, there's like a little unit or something, almost like we have experience with pedagogy. So those cases are going to be the contemporary Ramayana or uses of Ram to think about nationalism. 
And I also want to make sure we're talking about caste and caste practices or casteism. So we're also going to talk about Dalit traditions for a hot minute. There's obviously infinity that could be said about any iteration of contemporary Hindu traditions, which is why we'll stop with those and let our guest experts, Dr. Gandhi and Sundram, take their own, uh, add their own takes. Yes, great. I love this plan. So from what I remember, the Ramayana, I can never do that, uh, is an epic text, literally an epic, not like radical tubular epic, man. Like it's, it, it is (laughs) a massive story and it is composed in Sanskrit, but also popularized in song and dance and vernacular spoken languages, uh, not only in what's now India, but across South and Southeast Asia. And from what I remember... Uh, the epic follows Ram, who is main dude, incarnation of Vishnu, an avatar, if you will. You got as, it. Thank you. <laughs> as he has to do his religious duty or dharma as king, husband, son, and leader. Uh, and then his wife, Sita, uh, gets kidnapped by a demon king, uh, Ravana. Although, from what I understand, that's all politically dicey, but we'll come back to that. And there's a monkey god I love because, hi, hello, his name is Hanuman. And also, you know, I love a monkey. And you said that a lot of people really question how and if Rom is the hero or the anti-hero, good guy or the bad guy and all of this. So, like, I love an epic and I love a monkey. So, truly, what's not to like about oh this god. story? Oh, my God. You learned so much and I am Thank so you. proud. Yeah, Thank those you. are the basics. Good work. And from those basic nerds, I'm going to spin out now into how (laughs) this gets used contemporarily. And I'm going to do this in two ways. And you've noticed that I am really in the thick of it because I think this is the third time I've given you a two-point list. Mm -hmm. Uh, One is that we're going to think about nationalism and Hindutva specifically. And the Mm -hmm. other, number two, is to think about Dalit practices. Let's start with Dalits first, actually. Okay, this is another place where I would like to pause and say I'm pretty sure that I know what this word means, but what if you defined it for our nerds? You got it. Thanks. Dalit. It's our secret word of the day. And some people might say Dalit because that's how it's spelled in English, but, you know, Dalit is the name of folks um, from what, frankly, in the in the West and parts of South Asia, were known as untouchables, the lowest caste in the system. And for many folks who think about caste critically, you might even judge that. So to say not the lowest caste, but, but really a caste so low as to literally be outside the system, unranked, unseen, unvalued. So formally, and then in the nation state of India today, Dalits supposedly have some legal benefits as quote unquote scheduled castes. Um, it's a protected legal group that that acknowledges how horrific their uh, systemic oppression has been. But that legal category is imperfect and often problematic for all sorts of reasons. And I'm not going to get into that now. But in other places like the U.S., Uh, There are also movements to include caste and particularly Dalit uh, casted folks among other kinds of social contracts for for legal protection. So when we see, say, like an equal opportunity hiring statement, there are movements afoot to add caste to that long list of things that we acknowledge are systemically part of oppression and, and oppressive histories. Right. And if I'm understanding correctly, which I only know a teeny tiny bit about, but this is... 
an issue again that's not just happening in India or, or in the region of South Asia, but has uh, effects even in like American businesses. I, I know this has been an issue in like Silicon Valley. Yep, uh, absolutely. So. There are really like huge pushes right now to um, to to get caste recognized in the U.S. as a legitimate form of oppression because low historically low casted folks even after immigrate uh, immigrating and even after being here for quite a long time are experiencing the effects of the system of oppression known as casteism mm-hmm. which Mindy Kaling is not helping uh, yes i would i would yes i would agree with that mm-hmm. dalit though is a confusing terms because i want to be clear like we're talking about hinduism in this episode and while these folks are overwhelmingly Hindu uh, caste is not just a Hindu thing, particularly in the nation state of India historically, because there are Muslims and Christians and Sikh Dalits too. So Seriously? Dalit, yeah, Wait, okay, I did, so, I did not know that. <laughs> caste is oh, one okay. of those. It's a system, right? So no, when I'm- you uh, when you have a system that exists in that way, even if your religion was specifically founded to be outside of the caste system, there are ways that you either still fit into the caste system or you're assigned a caste or you can't convert out of that caste. It's super, super complicated. And in homework, I've got some good assignments for folks if they need to untangle how how hard it is. It is hard because like in my class, we talk about uh, Dalit folks converting to Buddhism uh, and that allows social mo- mobility, but uh, apparently it's more complicated than that. There's so much to know. Uh, I know. I know. The world is wondrous and impossible and upsetting. But sorry, I just want our listeners to know that Dalit activism in many ways centers on this term, right? It centers on the caste term mm-hmm. because it's connecting uncasted oppressed groups, frankly, across religions, even mm-hmm. if Hinduism is primary in that space, right? So the too long don't care of all of this, though you should fucking care because systemic oppression yeah. hurts all of us. But the too long didn't listen to this. And again, I'm focusing on India because of nation state laws. In a Hindu hegemony, the caste system is ubiquitous, even if it is technically illegal. Hmm. And the status of the lowest ranking group matters in every single way. But it also creates some interesting religious practices, nuances, and traditions. And that's kind of where I want us to head. Okay, I like that. Also, I'm going to need you to give me an example because, again, this sounds like a lot of theory with nothing to ground it. And how dare you, frankly. So like, okay, last time you said that epic texts and the Ramayana uh, exist in Sanskrit, which is a language that's often associated with high casted Hindus. So how are Dalits part of these practices? Okay, a few ways. I'm going to pick the most obvious one because, you know, time and because it's illustrative. (laughs) It's not singular though, right? So I'm thinking immediately when you ask that question, I am thinking here of the Ramnamis, a movement of Hindus that began with the Chamar community in what is now Chhattisgarh, India. So Chamars are one of many scheduled castes. They're Dalits. This group is known for using Ram. Ramnami literally means the name of Ram, like you hear the word Nam name in there. Ramnami, literally name of Ram. And by using Ram, I mean ritually as well as physically. So they're focused on Ram, Avatar of Vishnu. Okay. Name of the text, right? Mm -hmm. 
One of the reasons this is a better known movement despite its small size is because rum nummies are known for their elaborate rom tattoos. The rom tattoos are becoming less and less popular due to economic factors, discrimination, etc. But for mm-hmm. a very long time, rom nummies were easily identifiable because the word rom was written everywhere on Ram Nami's bodies, particularly elders. So faces, arms, legs, you name it. We're talking like stick and poke tattoos, head to toe. Many Ram Namis also wear shawls that are similarly block printed with Ram over and over again with no spaces. It's not like big in one part, small in another. This is like, um, like a one size font, uh, hmm. kind of uh, block printed all over a shawl that would be wrapped around a body, sometimes a sari or uh, a similar like salwar kameez kind of thing, full clothes. So your whole body would be printed with this text and then your clothing would also be printed with this text, particularly in these shawls. So you're okay. marking your identity and then also you're serving as a ritual object. Okay, this is fascinating for a number of reasons. First and foremost, for me, it is because it is a beautiful space to think both about religion and fonts. And mm-hmm. I have so many questions. You know how <laughs> I feel about fonts. I I want it. I uh, I have so many thoughts. But okay, so is it just about what they're wearing and what they're doing to their bodies with these tattoos and these shawls? What do the Ramnamis do? How does any of this besides like the name Ram relate to some of these like Brahmanic practices or texts that we tend to find in like the textbooks that tell us about the world religions. Cause I have a number of those textbooks and I have not read about any of this at all. So for starters, this group specifically locates itself as a challenge to those traditions that would exclude them historically and contemporarily. Yes. So good, like, I love that. this is a movement of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dalit people Okay. Who basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, mm-hmm. fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put the name of God all over my body, all over my body. Yeah. And do it. Because listen, better. like, the, the groups that were uncasted or low casted were, were in some cases physically barred from even listening to Sanskrit be performed or recited. So, mm-hmm. like, the, the like, not only will I recite this, but I'm going to make my whole gig reciting the name of this God that you and your high casted priestly Sanskritic Brahmanic worldview would deny me, often with physical violence. I am going to put it all over my body. How fucking dare you? It really is like a challenge in and of itself to who has access. So it's religion and fonts and spite. I like it. I like, yeah. I like all of this. Rad. But there also is a way that Ramnamis use a vernacular version of the Ramayana of their as their central text. Okay, I don't know what any of that means. Great. What? So Sanskrit is a language <laughs> that few people spoke mm-hmm. and limited groups had access to in terms of literacy. That okay. doesn't mean stories don't exist in the vernacular, which is to say spoken, popular languages. Mm-hmm. So the Ramayana is in Sanskrit. Mm-hmm. But there is a version of the Ramayana called the Ram Charthmanis, and it's a poem 
a long mm-hmm. poem from the 16th century. And if you mm-hmm. care about this, it's by a notable figure named Tulsidas. It's in an Eastern dialect of Hindi on purpose. Most of us nerdy historians agree that Tulsidas, who was very, very literate in Sanskrit and other languages, purposefully wrote the Ramcharit Manas, this vernacular dialect of Hindi, uh, to make it accessible, specifically to the people that weren't supposed to have access to it. I love an OG public scholar. That's amazing. I know. 16th century public scholar. What's up, Tulsi Thus? Love it. Love it. Goals. Basically, it's the Ramchart Manas is a Ramayana in a performable way. So the Ramnamis enter the scene. Is this a theater project? A little bit, yeah. Yes! I know. I'm telling you. I'm bowling right down the middle for you, girl. (laughs) They enter the scene way later than the 16th century, right? So this vernacular text which is sung and memorized and performed exists and then through that exposure historians argue comes this group the Ramnamis but they use this interpretation of the Sanskrit epic in a way in a loud way to have Mm -hmm. access to the stories about this one divinity Ram and it's one way of interpreting Ram from the Ramayana there is still an annual performance of the Ramchart Manas in this community there is still a community of Ramnamis And while they're listed as Hindus in the Indian census, which is a whole other issue, there's a lot of top-down debate about how legit these practices are, how authentically Hindu they are, how correct they might be. Hmm. Okay, there's so much going on here. I know, I'm so sorry. No, 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 it's okay. It's really interesting. It's just there's there's so much. I'm like picturing people being chased away from listening to Sanskrit and then getting access to these texts in Hindi being like, uh, these are ours now and we're going to do it up and better and in a bigger, more spectacular way. And I, wow. Okay, okay. Yeah. And the god who's named here is the upholder of the caste system, right? Ram is the upholder of Dharma and caste is a big part of that. And they're like, Holy shit. guess who's ours? It's him. He's ours Holy now. Crap. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So this is, I mean, this, it's deep. I, I, it, it's not it's just a, a troll, but it is, is an epic troll, a literally epic troll. Okay. So cast plays in here historically. Ramnamis come from an utterly oppressed cast, but they still found this way to uh, access these huge canonical, like gate kept Hindu texts. And despite having unique ritual practices like tattoos or printed shawls or annual festivals, this is also what Hinduism is because this is part of what Hindus do. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, that's enough stories and texts though. Uh, Hands on hips. I'm ready. Now you tell me about politics. I waited long enough. It's my time. Okay. We talked about Hindu nationalism in our Smart Girl Summer religious nationalism episode. And I will never not love a callback. I know you do. But if we're talking Ramayana, we have to talk Hindu nationalism. As interesting as all this caste stuff is, and as much as I could talk Ramnami till I'm blue in the face, (laughs) we cannot talk Ramayana and we cannot talk Ram without talking Hindu nationalism. And I'm not sorry at all because this is hashtag facts. I do not want to drone on and on, so maybe we keep this shorter-ish. And you know what, Megan? I know that you're playing coy to my verbose in this episode, but can you, can you teach some of this? Can you tell our nerds <laughs> what you know about, maybe not the Ramayana specifically, but Ram and Hindutva? I mean, <laughs> it definitely won't take long, but you bet your sweet ass I can. Put me <laughs> in, coach. All right. You're in. <laughs> do it. Finally. Finally, politics. This piece I know. All right. Hindutva. 
It's our secret word of the day. Is a movement itself that means Hindu-ness. And it articulates a sense of India and sometimes all of South Asia as inherently Hindu. We have seen this play out in really violent ways uh, against plurality within Hindu traditions and especially against religious minorities like Muslims. And uh, that ties in part to the Ramayana or Ram in this famous example of the Babri Masjid or the Ram Janmabhumi, the temple in Ayodhya. The site which uh, held a mosque and a temple for literally hundreds and hundreds of years until religious nationalism. So Ayodhya, uh, many Hindus say, is Ram's birthplace. And that makes the site tied to text from the start. The we don't have time for this version is in the 1980s and early 90s, Hindu nationalists led a campaign to rid the shared sacred historical site of its sharedness to basically evict and destroy the mosque. Uh, they did this in the name of religion and Hinduism explicitly. In December 1992, this is exactly what happened. A mob literally ripped down the 16th century mosque complex. And afterward, there were many, many, many lives lost, like over 2,000 lives lost in the violence that erupted. So yeah, uh, this directly ties both to text and politics and interpretation, right? Like the Sanskrit Ramayana. Uh, says that Ram was born in Ayodhya, a real city in contemporary northern India. And the Ramayana, uh, Ram is the rightful Dharmic ruler of what we now call India. Ram became a symbol of proper Indianness, Indianness being utterly and inextricably tied to Hinduness. And then political leaders literally called on citizens to do religious pilgrimage and service at a site they made controversial, which then, shocking no one who thinks about religion or nationalism or politics, uh, rather quickly turned into a scene of destruction and violence. Yeah. What did I miss? Nothing, except oh. I clearly missed that that <laughs> that those words are hard for you. So I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't. I don't do the languages. I'm so sorry, but you got it. Well learned, maybe by osmosis from being near me for all these years. <laughs> I'm kidding, but that's that's really it. And the only thing I'd add, for the sake of time, and Lord knows, there's like fifty gajillion things to say about this. <laughs> is that today, some 30 years after that particular incident of the tearing down of the Babri Masjid, we see the slogan slash prayer slash mantra, Jai Shri Ram, as a literal rallying cry for Hindutva supporters. And I'm going to link in homework to teachable articles on this, but in, retro, in, in, in like readable ar- articles, hmm. but in recent years, this phrase, which literally translates to victory or glory to Lord Ram, is a straight-up dog whistle. So anti-Muslim violence is at an all-time high around the world, frankly, but certainly in India. And there are alarming, frequent attacks on Muslims where Jai Shri Ram is the thing that someone is yelling, the chant of the mob, the comment section post. This is a phrase that people are using literally in moments of violence. So so there have been reports of lynchings where the crowd is screaming, Jai Shri Ram, victory to Lord Ram, whilst murdering um, often a a non-Hindu. So I I don't, I don't, uh, that's a stone cold bummer. It's a stone cold bummer. I don't know how to get Uh, myself out of it. I mean, it's, religion is politics. Politics is religion. Religious nationalism is disgusting trash wherever it shows up. Yeah, that was good. You got it. 
Thanks. But you know what? Okay, I centered our stuff on the Ramayana in part because it's dear to my heart as one of the very first texts I read in Sanskrit and in Hindi, but mostly (laughs) because it's this complex, interesting place to see how a text gets interpreted in ways that maybe we wouldn't expect and by groups of people we maybe wouldn't anticipate. I'm curious, though, what Dr. Srina Gandhi would have to say about other issues in contemporary Hinduism. My name is Srina Gandhi, and I am an expert on religion in the Americas, white supremacy, cultural appropriation, and yoga. I care that folks, my students, my family, my uh, fellow scholars know about what I study because I want them to understand how we all have privileges that can contribute to the oppression of all, even in the practice of, uh, or the innocuous practice of something like yoga. What I would say about contemporary Hindu traditions is first, they're incredibly diverse, uh, you know, different from village to village, community to community, state to state, all over South Asia, India, but then also globally. Uh, So what one Hindu does in Tamil Nadu might not make sense to what another Hindu does in Gujarat or what another Hindu does in South Africa or Trinidad. The other thing I would say is that Hinduism always has been incredibly material and it's imagined to be this like exotic, spiritual, mystical religion. And all religions have that aspect to it. But it's not just that. And um, people kind of imagine it to be this like vat of spirituality. Uh, and then you actually look at what people are doing. And it's incredibly material, whether it's you know, doing a daily puja in their own home and dressing their gods in um, you know, custom-made uh, silk clothes, or it's the exchange of money, the exchange of uh, different fruits, and you know, it's it's a it's a very gift-giving material religion, uh, and that is often missed. The other thing I would say is that it's always in formation. And this formation is often, uh, always, I would say, uh, impacted by the various cultural, political, social, economic forces around it. Um, And so when you look at the study of any South Asian religion, but, you know, Hinduism for the purposes of this, you have to look at how it's in formation with larger forces like uh, white supremacy and and caste supremacy. And I think you cannot ignore that. So I'm part of a collective that we call the uh, Feminist Critical Hindu Studies Collective, or Fox, and you can edit that out if you would like. Uh, but the Fox Collective and I, uh, we all wrote an article together um, called Feminist Critical Studies in Formation. And one of the things that we try to pull through um, the article is that Hindu practice and identity are in formation constantly, you know, and 
uh, in a dialectic relationally with larger cultural forces, uh, like I said in my previous answer. Um, and specifically, we're looking at um, issues of caste uh, supremacy and, and white supremacy. And I think that when you start looking locationally at Hindu practice or identity information, you see one that it's constantly changing, that there's nothing kind of static about it. Two, it's not in a vacuum, right? And three, you know, the idea that there has been a fixed or even just like one idea or one um, Hindu identity uh, is really a false one. People like to imagine Hinduism as the oldest religion in the world that kind of started with the formation of or the, you know, the writing or the oral tradition of the Vedas and has kind of continued along this kind of, you know, linear path. Um, but the idea of like a Hindu community or a Hindu um, identity is more of a relatively recent one. Like I'll agree that there are threads that pull through the Vedas through today, but then there are other threads, let's say like beef eating that do not, right? And if you suggest to a Hindu, which I have often done, uh, that, you know, the practice of beef eating was quite robust during the Vedic period, um, you know, they might not necessarily like me afterwards or will roll their eyes or just kind of dismiss what I'm saying. Uh, and so I think um, that you have to look at the context always. I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm a broken record when I say this, the context of what particular practice are you looking at? What particular identity? And if you're not contextualizing it regionally, historically, politically, socially, culturally, economically, then you're really not getting a good, robust, uh, full idea or picture of what's going on and and i think that is actually very politically inconvenient at times uh, because people like to imagine one thing when the reality is often something else and I, and i would say this not only just for practicing hindus but also anyone that teaches about or studies hinduism has to really make caste central in their analysis and their studying and their scholarship I just love learning from Dr. Gandhi. She is just the bee's knees. Me too. And we've got some stuff um, in the homework for, for you to read more. But you know what, nerds? We're gluttons for experts in this episode because yes. we also have Dr. Deepa Sundaram to hear from. Her work focuses on networks, digital religion, and yes, Hindutva. So let's hear from her now. Yes, please. My name is Deepa Sundaram. And I'm an expert on South Asian digital culture, religion, and media. I care that folks know about what I study because digital publics are real and powerful communities shaping our non-virtual lives in obvious and not so obvious ways. Hindu traditions are diverse, innovative, contradictory, and dynamic. And I think we have seen a push by particular Hindu groups in contemporary communities 
towards establishing an antiquity, a sense of timelessness, and a sense of cohesion that has muted this dynamism in particular and effaced the sort of contradictory nature of this tradition. In general, representing deities in various media has long been accepted and indeed encouraged in Hindu traditions. The earliest Hindu ritual or worship site website is sharanam.com, which was established in 1999. Since then, recent sites have popped up all over the place, like shubpuja.com, which was started by a London School of Economics grad, or epuja.co.in, which focuses on pujas for health and wellness and wealth and marital success. All of these sites are focused on these material gains, like educational attainment, and of course, spiritual and religious obligations and enlightenment. Now there are also virtual reality applications for quote unquote experiencing or participating in a puja in a temple through virtual means and do-it-yourself apps to help you conduct a puja without the need for a priest or a pujari or pundit. Brahmin priests I've interviewed say pujas conducted online are half power and lack the efficacy of those conducted conducted at a material temple. Despite this lack of endorsement from the caste privileged, while seemingly offering flexibility and accessibility, Hindu ritual websites often embed Savarna or caste privileged groups values into the language used and the products advertised. So digital technology is on the one hand offering more opportunity and on the other, streamlining and sort of packaging a particular set of rituals, practices, and values as quote-unquote Hinduism. I could focus on a number of festivals, but I'm going to choose Deepavali, or sometimes heard as Diwali, or the Festival of Lights, which just happened in early November. It also happens to be my namesake holiday, as my birthday is next week. This particular festival is a testament to how Hinduism is both elastic and rigidly hierarchical. The festival has a number of different meanings to communities depending on region. Some see it as the homecoming of the epic hero Rama with his wife Sita from the forest. Others see it as a time that the goddess of prosperity, Lakshmi, visits one's home. And still others see this as the time of the homecoming of the Mahabharata heroes, the Pandavas from Hastinapur. It is generally seen as a triumph of light over darkness or good over evil. And it's celebrated by Hindus, Jains, Sikhs, and Buddhists in the subcontinent. Some anti-caste activists have shown that many of the narratives that characterize not only Deepavali, but other Hindu festivals are likely mythologized versions of history in which the darkness or evil was representing a marginalized caste or tribal community. Hindu holidays such as Onam and Durga Puja are directly viewed by Adivasi or first dweller communities as a time to mourn and speak out against casteism. Quick example is the Asur community in Bengal, which sees Durga Puja, which happens in 
late September and early October as a time to mourn their revered ancestor, Mahishasura. In the Hindu tradition, that particular festival is seen as a time when goddess Durga destroys the evil Mahishasura or buffalo demon and saves the people. It's a triumph of good over evil. So these kinds of conflicting narratives also participate in how we see Deepavali and what is actually constituted as the darkness in this holiday, or who would be a better way of saying it. As we all, or many of us think, uh, world religions has been a contentious model for some time. And as a model, it tends to hold a static vision of what constitutes a religion or tradition or culture. It reminds me a bit of the world literature's model as well. And as a comparative literature scholar, many of us found that equally problematic for the same reasons. It reminds me of James Clifford's critiques of anthropology as a discipline in that it had been trapped in the idea that we can go over there and study this place as if communities and people and places are things for which clear boundaries and separations can be delineated. He points to the Orientalism of anthropology and how they can be better by looking at traveling cultures, as he puts it. I think a similar application can be made to world religions and would be more beneficial to understanding a tradition like Hinduism. World religions assumes Hinduism or any other religion for that matter as a bonded concrete thing. We need nomenclature that captures the dynamic nature of canons and traditions, the shifting moral and ethical frames, and I think most importantly, the transnational, virtual, and local roots of adherence. All religion is both local and global, and world religions doesn't really get at that. While we continue to struggle with the ongoing onslaught and illness and death of the pandemic, My field of digital religion has become bizarrely normal rather than a sort of quirky, different way of engaging religious praxis. In some ways, you might call it a necessity if you are planning on attending a religious service in most places over the past 18 months. Before the pandemic, I hadn't really imagined a scenario in which nearly every sacred material space in the world would become inaccessible at the same time. With mixed feelings, I suggest that the pandemic has made my subfield of digital religion uniquely relevant within the broader sort of pantheon of religious studies. People want to know whether conducting rituals and prayers online works, how it works, and lockdowns have spurred all kinds of innovation and rethinking of traditional concepts such as sacred space, particularly in the concept context of Hinduism. Digital access to Hindu ritual services has been around for over 20 years. But a sacred material space has always been required until these recent innovations that forced us out of sacred spaces, material spaces, I should say. But what I'm learning from these innovations is that while our lives have for a long time now entwining with tech, the pandemic just sped up a process that was already happening, and it's perhaps not going to slow down. 
material sacred spaces will continue to be the gold standard, I think, in Hinduism and other traditions. But I believe we'll soon see attempts to fashion a virtual Hindu ritual site in which rituals can be conducted actually online, not just facilitated through an online portal. And I think we'll see it in the near future. Isn't it just the best to have these guest experts tell us what's what? Truly an embarrassment of riches. Thanks, Professor Ladies. Yay! Uh, which brings us to a little bit leave it. It's 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 a little bit leave it. Where we're letting you know what we think the most important, most interesting, or most challenging part of this topic is. It is a little bit to leave you with. All right, I'll go first, I guess. You have done a lot of chatting. Um, <laughs> is that a read? <laughs> uh, it's not a read, just a fact. <laughs> and facts are facts, America. All right, my global religions class focuses, this will not surprise you at all, very, very extremely heavily on contemporary politics. Uh, and because we spend so much time talking about contemporary politics, when we talk about Hinduism and South Asia, we talk a lot about Hindu nationalism. And a piece that I keep needing to come back to over and over and over again is that Hinduism and Hindu nationalism are not the same thing. It is really important that my students know about how religious ethno-nationalism, again, call back to Smart Girl Summer episode two, is working in the world today. But it's equally important that my students understand there is so, 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 so much more to Hinduism than just the ways some folks want to use it as a cudgel to chill religious difference and silence dissenting voices. Um, I'm going to put this in the show notes, but I really like Kalpana Jain's piece on this point. Ooh, yeah, that's a really, that's a really good piece. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Kalpana is nice and people should read her stuff. She's smart. Well, okay. So you're, you're not wrong. I've, I've done a lot of chatting. This time. I love your chats. For me, uh, my little bit leave it, I guess, is that I care that that our listeners know about Hindu traditions because they're big, they're messy, and they aren't monolithic. And frankly, far too many folks are out here in the world doing violence against each other, against scholars on the internet, against whole groups legally over who gets to count as Hindu and who's allowed access to Hindu texts and spaces and opinions. And so, frankly... It's important. There's a whole genre of Hindutva trolls that like come for everybody that I've ever cared about. So I care that you can acknowledge both that those Hindu trolls and Hindutva trolls are legitimate Hindus and that we need to address why and how this violence is persisting, particularly in digital spaces. Period. The end. Yeah, they can be legitimate Hindus and also legitimate assholes. They're both. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Venn diagrams are complicated. They are. Mm. Anyway, if you don't know, now you know. And if you don't know, now you know. The segment where we get one factoid each. <laughs> Megan, I know you know things about Hindu traditions. You want to go first on this one? I mean, I definitely know way more about Hindu traditions now than I did when we started. <laughs> but yeah, uh, and I'm going to be obnoxious and bring it back to what's now the United States. You're welcome. It's not obnoxious. You're allowed. <laughs> we said today's theme was contemporary. So That's you know what? True. If you want to bring that, that could be anywhere. Contemporary <laughs> exists everywhere. It does. But for me, it exists in the U.S. So <laughs> former allegedly Democratic candidate for president, Tulsi Gabbard, was the first practicing Hindu elected to Congress. Her campaign 
BT Dubs was endorsed by, or presidential campaign, I should say, was endorsed by noted white nationalists David Duke and Richard Spencer because religio-racialization is complicated. Sure is. Also, former Hindu and former governor of Louisiana, Bobby Jindal, apparently got his nickname Bobby because he really, really liked Bobby Brady from the Brady Bunch. Stop it right now. I mean it. Again, religio-racialization is complicated. The end. Who likes Bobby Brady? Like, that's a serial killer's answer. uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I mean... If you're familiar yeah. with Bobby Jindal, I don't think that would be a surprise. Oh, no, also, anyway. <laughs> current VP Kamala Harris was raised by a Hindu mom, although she identifies as Baptist. Cool. And that those are the facts that I have about <laughs> these are the Hindus in our government. In our government. Oh, We've really lost the plot, listeners. <laughs> I want to put up one of those Simpsons cards. It's like, we're experiencing technical <laughs> difficulties. <laughs> and it's just like me and I'm drunk. Anyway. And if you don't know, now you know. Don't pack up your stuff yet, nerds. It's time for homework. Homework? What homework? All right, nerds. Surprising no one. I've got a lot of things. I talked what? a lot about the no. Ramayana. So I am going to rapid fire these. Go check out the show notes. <laughs> I am going to hide so so many things there that you have never heard me say on the on the air before because Megan doesn't check what I write so I can yeah. do whatever I want. It's true. Okay. <laughs> on the Ramayana, you should definitely check out if you're interested in gender in particular Kishwar's classic Yes to Sita No to Ram in the classic equally classic volume questioning Ramayana's a South Asian tradition. Um it's an oldie but goodie at this point but it's all about how women like are not interested in Ram as a character because of feminism. Hmm. Then there's um, uh, Snigdha's Punam's The Three Most Polarizing World Words in India, which is about this Jaishri Ram issue. It's a, a foreign policy hmm. article from uh, right as these anti-Muslim pogroms were erupting in early 2020. I would totally recommend this film that is free and available because the, the director... Um, wanted it to be free and available it's called sita sings the blues and it's oh, a, a cute one. four-part modern and historic retelling of the ramayana from sita's perspective then there's chandar's how did a 1980s tv soap did the spade work for hindu nationalism so it's all about thinking about how this ramayana which had been serialized as a soap opera in the 80s with like crazy effect how did that do frankly like the legwork for um the contemporary hindu nationalism we see today yeah. and then i'll recommend banaji's um 2018 article um sorry yeah on uh, called vigilante publics um where it's about orientalism modernity and hindutva fascism it's a heavy read but also i think pretty mandatory mm. I also talked about the Ramnamis. The classic there is Ramdas Lambs wrapped in the name. It's dated, but it's super solid and very readable if you're interested in like accessible academia. And if you care about the Ram Charitmanas, this uh, vernacular Ramayana, um, I've, I've got a bit on the Babri Mas, Bollywood and Gender um, by Tiwari that I'll put up on on the website that's pretty recent. It's in a companion to world literature. And then I've got, I'm sorry, I'm like just doing a dump. I don't really care. Um, uh, Basu has some stuff on 
that is like mandatory. So this recent Duke book called Hindutva as political monotheism mm-hmm. is like mind blowingly good theory with quite a lot of casework. So that sounds interesting to both it. of us. And listen, nerds, I want to just both be apologetic and, again, tell you to check the show notes. There is so much on Hinduism that exists outside of India and the U.S. We have focused there because, God, this is a long episode and we haven't even done the rest (laughs) of the world. I'm going to stash citations for things like Hinduism in the Caribbean, Hinduism in other parts of Asia, Hinduism in the Middle East. So check those show notes. I've got tons of stuff for you if you're interested in globalizing your unit on Hinduism. I'll awesome. stop there. I will. St- I really will stop. You sure? No, I'm not. But I'll stop and I'll just, I'll drink my beer. I'll drink my beer. You go. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. I have many fewer things <laughs> to recommend because this is not my area of expertise. I will plug again, Kalpa Jane's piece for the Neiman reports where she makes very clear the stakes in the international press, particularly distinguishing between Hinduism and Hindu nationalism. I also use this Vox explainer video in my classes to uh, to think about the conflict in Kashmir, which we did not get into, but is absolutely a conflict around religious nationalism. Duh, I also think you should read our guest experts. I would start with uh, Deepa's awesome Namaste Nationalism, which she wrote for Religion News Service, as she is a columnist for Religion News Service, was also picked up by the Washington Post. Shrina's got a ton of great stuff too. I really like her piece about yoga in the time of COVID uh, in part because it includes goat yoga and I just really like baby goats. So that was for the revealer. Um, I also want to shout out the South Asian Scholar Activist Collective, of which uh, our previous guest star, Dr. Simranjit Singh, and our current guest star, Deepa Sundaram, Dr. Deepa Sundaram, are a part um, so the South Asian Scholar Activist Collective has pulled together a bunch of resources, particularly in their Hindu harassment field manual, which is meant to be a, a guide if and when uh, public scholars come in contact with Hindu harassment, which basically if you're saying anything about Hinduism in public, you're pretty much guaranteed some Hindu patrols at this point. It's it's frankly a phenomenal resource. It really is Truly. super impressive. Like even if you don't care, you should send that to your deans and your bosses because it's phenomenal. Very much so. And even if you, yeah, if you do not care about this issue of Hinduism, if you are anybody who is in any way interested in sharing your research with the public, this is an incredible resource just for responding to harassment full stop, even as it is located in the South Asian context. Um, context. Uh, let's see. I really appreciated uh, Hassan Minaj's reporting for Patriot Act, RIP, uh, on the 2019 Indian elections and the role that Hindu nationalism played in those elections. So that's two-parter. I've got YouTube clips for you. I also really liked his response to the Howie Modi event where the Indian prime minister visited the U.S. and claimed Hassan Minaj as a very important Indian, like was part of the slideshow, but also would not let Hassan Minaj in the building to cover the event. So he's got footage of him sitting out, like basically tailgating in the parking lot, which was fun. Uh, and I liked the like temple intrigue subplot uh, for the Hindu character on Sensei. And that show is on Netflix. I love that. I love that. It's great. She's also got a relationship with Ganesh and I love a Ganesh and you know, I anyway. know you do. Big thanks to those of you writing reviews on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, and Google. It really helps our nerds of the week. <laughs> Very few we want to shout out this week and send a love directly to are F-I-J-K-L-M, F-L-I-J-K-5, 
who I suspect are my parents, and our personal favorite hater, I am Big Daddy 69, who you can tell from his name probably sucks a lot. <laughs> I also really like just to be specific, uh, he said that our voices made him want to gouge out his eyeballs, and that is not how sound works. But it no, is colorful. It is. But if you want to be a nerd of the week, write us, write us, physically write us a review on Apple Podcasts or Amazon. Because if you just like us or give us five stars, we can't see your screen name. But if you write a review like your voices make me want to gouge out my eyes, then we can see you and we will shout shout you out. We basically just don't like I am Big Daddy 69 show y'all up. We know you're out there. We appreciate the love. Just let us see your screen name so that we know who we're appreciating. Join us next time for more History of the World Religions Part 1 when we chat about religion and law because real world application is a crucial part of this syllabus. Big ups to our research assistant, Alex Castellano, whose transcription work makes this pod accessible and therefore awesome. Need more religion nerdery? You know where to find us. It's Twitter. The answer is always Twitter, nerds. It's Twitter. You can find Megan, that's me on Twitter, at MPGPhD, and Elise at P-R-O-F-I-R-M-F, or the show at Keeping It underscore 101. Find the website at keepingit101.com. Peep the Insta if you want to. Drop us a rating or review in your podcatcher of choice. And with that, peace out, nerds. Do your homework. It's on the syllabus. Don't challenge these stories.